I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Catholic Church. The communion of saints. The forgiveness of sins. The resurrection of the body. And the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. That is, of course, the creed, and uh, we're in the final part, this side of Christmas, of this creed, and basically having told us in the first few verses what to believe, uh, first few lines, what to believe about Jesus, uh, the creed now begins to explore the foundations of those beliefs, and it rapidly takes us through Christmas, and then Holy Week, and then Good Friday, and then Easter Sunday, as it unfolds the events on which the gospel is based. And so we today are going to be focusing, because it's Christmas, and um, I hope you're ready. I'm ready. This is as Christmas as I get. This is my Christmas t-shirt this year. Look at that. There you go. All I want for Christmas is sleep. (laughs) It's got beautiful colors on it, so it feels Christmassy. My mother-in-law bought me this because she knows what I'm like. Um, And we're going to focus today on the virgin birth. The beginning part of, of the, the Christmas narrative. And I know if you've been a Christian for a while, or even if you've not been a Christian for a while, you've just been around church, you know that every year we get that kind of moment of, what's the new take on Christmas this year? How do we tell this story again in a kind of familiar way? And we can kind of roll our eyes a little bit, or we might not roll our eyes, we might just smile and kind of think, oh, here we go. Like, yep, just endure the carols. Praise the Lord, there's only one carol service this year. That kind of attitude... And when we do that, we miss massively. We kind of, if we think that Christmas is mainly about evangelism for non-Christians, we miss something. We miss something huge. We gravely miss out on these views. And the Apostles' Creed is a summary of the foundational beliefs of what it is to be a Christian, and this makes it in. So we can't skip past virgin birth. We can't, uh, it's virgin conception, really. We can't skip past Christmas and its incredible significance to us. Today we're going to look at conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And the story is recorded in Luke chapter 1. I just feel the Lord is going to do something significant this morning. We are going to come back into some worship stuff in a moment. And we're going to respond to God. And we're going to be changed by Him and by His power. And it starts with a significant moment here in these Very familiar verses, verse 26 of Luke 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. 
He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary, did you know? Yes, she did. <laughs> and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Hold that verse. Nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Nothing's impossible with God. Right now, everything that came in our time of worship, you think, well, how, how, what? Nothing is impossible with God. And the response of Mary is the response from us this morning. Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word, according to your promise, according to what you say, God. We're in this series, I believe. Not I feel, not I think, not if everything lines up, if everything works out. I believe. Why? Because God says, and if God says, then it shall come to pass. And if God promises, he's the promise keeper. And if God declares, he is the way maker. And if God says, then we say, I believe, I'm a servant of the Lord. May it be as you say, God. Flick over to chapter two, verse seven. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. I believe in Jesus. Yep, we're all there. Conceived by the Holy Spirit. Okay. Born of the Virgin Mary. Man, yeah. Like we are so familiar, if you've been in church, we're so familiar with those verses that we, we kind of go, yeah, of course, well, there's nothing strange about that in the slightest. Okay. We miss when we, when we kind of don't, fully allow the, the, the stunning reality of conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, we, when we don't allow the astounding nature of that sentence to penetrate our hearts and minds and souls, we miss something of the stunning reality of what Christmas is all about. This is a foundational doctrine. It's why it's in the creed, and yet it's a, it's a doctrine that is so often questioned. Many non-Christians, I mean, if we went on the high street right now and said, um, do you think virgins can give birth to babies? Most non-Christians would say, um, <laughs> no, that's just ridiculous. And yet here it is, right at the heart of the word. And the reality is, lots of, non, uh, lots of Christians also would similarly question this doctrine. The skeptics are not just outside the church. Throughout church history, plenty of people have tried to dismiss or downplay the idea of the virgin birth. So the, there's a, a group of people called the Ebionites who, who said Jesus was born through a normal human conception, that it wasn't kind of divine, it was just normal. Marcion said Jesus was so heavenly, he wasn't physically born at all, he just appeared on the scene. Valentinus, he said that, this is gross, he said that Jesus passed through Mary's body like water through a pipe without taking on any of her yucky humanity. <laughs> now that's a pleasant thought right there, isn't it? Any of you who have given birth, like, what? That sounds preferable. <laughs> but no, not true. Many people dismiss the virgin birth, many Christians, as kind of mythical 
or unimportant or a bit made up or a little bit embarrassing, we'll kind of just skip over that part of the story and, and just focus on other aspects of it. And yet here it is, considered crucial enough, foundational enough that it's included in the creed. It's recorded by the gospel writers with no footnotes, no asterisks, no kind of uh, bits in brackets that say, don't really worry about this. No, it's, there's no pretending, there's no apologies. It is what it is. The two gospel writers who record the, 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 gospel, uh, the nativity story, well, the first one was Matthew, who was a former tax collector. Tax collectors ain't gullible. Oh, you have paid it. It's in the post. Oh, okay, I believe you. No, they were not gullible. They, they, knew, what, they, they knew a yarn. They knew a story. They, he was not gullible. And the other one, well, Luke, he was a doctor. Right? Now, I, I know that modern science and medicine has changed a lot in the last 2,000 years, and Dr. Luke probably wouldn't feel massively at home in the NHS and in a modern-day hospital. But how babies were born... And conceived, that's not a new idea, something we discovered recently. They've always not, these guys were not gullible, they knew the reality, and yet here they are, they recorded it. Why? Because from the very beginning, they understood that this was an exceptional, supernatural event. Something extraordinary is going on here. Donald MacLeod says this, the virgin birth is posted on guard at the door of the mystery of Christmas, and none of us must think of hurrying past it. It stands on the threshold of the New Testament, blatantly supernatural, defying our rationalism, informing us that all that follows belongs to the same order as itself. All that follows, that's important, belongs to the same order as itself, and that if we find it offensive, there is no point proceeding further. From this moment on, Every single aspect of the Christian life, everything that follows, everything in the Gospels, everything through our Acts, everything through the Epistles, everything throughout church history from the beginning to right here, right now, as we start on the turn of a new decade, 2020, that's us, every single part of it is all supernatural. Every little bit of it. Not, it's not been about, and it never has been, and never will be about human effort or strategy, or idea, or willpower. Every single part of the Christian life, every single part of the church is a supernatural work of God. Every last bit is initiated by God, it's led by God, and it will be finished by God. Every aspect of your life is a supernatural reality. And at the heart of Christianity, as we've said lots of times over the last few weeks, is I believe. Not I feel, not I think it might be, not I know. But because this is what God says, by faith and without faith, it's impossible to please God, I believe. And so we need to believe this, not just because it's in the Bible, so we'd better believe it. Not just because if you take this bit out, which other bits do you take out? But because of the profound implications, the stunning implications of the virgin birth for us right here, right now. See, the first thing that this does is it shows us the true identity of Jesus. Now, this is like, Christianity 101, basics, right? We all get this, very simple, very obvious, move on, but it's actually very, very important. See, Jesus is fully divine. He's fully God and he's fully man. He's not two persons. He's not a mix. He's not a kind of sort of like man and sort of like God. He's not a bit like a man. He is fully man and fully God. Theologians call it the hypostatic union, it's the, which is fancy, but it just means the personal union of the two natures of Jesus, fully God, fully man, 
in one. He's not two people. He's fully God and he is fully man. And it's really important that we understand the implications of this. It's a mystery that we fully can't get our head around. But let's be clear. He is fully man. He was born of a human mother, which this is incredible. Just think about this for a moment. He was born of a human mother. The presence of God, which had previously dwelt in the tabernacle, the holy of holies, so incredibly holy and other and awesome that only one person who was thoroughly cleansed once a year could even enter into that presence, the holy of holies. So holy, so other, now dwells in the womb of a teenager. (laughs) He's a human being like us, in a real body like us. He was born into this world like us, and later he will suffer and die like we one day will. He's fully man. And if he wasn't, the reason he needs to be is because if he wasn't, how could we really accept that he's like us? Hebrews 4 tells us that he understands our weaknesses. He faced all the same things that we faced. He was tempted in every way like we are tempted, and yet he did not sin. If he wasn't fully man, he'd say, well, of course he didn't sin and didn't, because he did, he's not like us. No, he's absolutely like us. He knows what you have been through. He knows what you're facing. He's been there himself. He knows what it is to face rejection. He knows what it is to face accusation. He knows what it is to face temptation. He knows what it is to have annoying brothers and sisters and family members who just don't get it. He knows what it is to be hungry. He knows what it is to grieve. He wept like we weep. He experienced emotions like we experienced. He needed sleep. He was so tired like some of us are right now. He's been tempted in every way. Yea, he did not sin. He's fully man. But if he's a man just like us, just a man, then the problem with that is he then shares in our need for redemption as well. In other words, if he's just a man, then he can't save us or redeem us because he's no different from us. He becomes part of the problem, not our solution. Now we know from Sunday school onwards that Jesus is the answer, right? In every single thing. What's the question? It doesn't matter because Jesus is the answer. But if he's the answer to our big problem of sin, then he needs to be different from us. And the Bible says he's fully man and fully divine. Hebrews 1 uh, verse 3 says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Wow, just think through that for a moment. He's He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Both father and son are of the same nature. He's, ex- he's fully God. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And he's the son of God in every sense of the word. He didn't become son of God later in his life. He's eternally existed from creation. He exists right now. He's sat at the right hand of the Father. We'll get to that later. He's God. And he's God who though he was in the form of God, Philippians 2 verse 6, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And later he would humble himself again by taking the punishment that we deserve in order that you and I might be made right at one, reconciled back to God the Father. Shows us the identity of God, but the second stunning implication of the virgin birth is it once again shows us the initiative of God. Like the virgin conception is just another example of God 
taking the initiative in sorting out the problem of sin for us. See, we, we can't do this ourselves. We can't make ourselves right. We can't sort out our problems. If we could sort out our own problems, we would have worked it out by now and we would have already done it. But we can't. And we can't sort out our sin problem. We need God to come and do it for us. And the Christmas story is yet again an example of the initiative of God on display. Like just think about it for a moment. As the angel rocks up, the angel doesn't kind of come and ask Mary, um, Mary, do you mind kind of doing me a favor? Would you, would you do us a favor? There's this new slot that we kind of need filling on, this, on the church serving team. I mean, it's no big deal. It's only sort of nine months, a bit of morning sickness. Um, you'll probably get ridiculed a little bit by other people, but just ignore them. Who cares what other people think? Don't worry about it. It's only about 18 years or so, and then you'll be free of anything. He didn't come and say, Mary, could you do me a favor? He comes and he announces, behold, you will conceive in your womb. You will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. God didn't ask Mary for permission. He acted very gently, but very decisively, to save his people from his sins. See, we can't save ourselves. He doesn't come asking us for permission. Do you just mind if I sort out your mess for you? He comes and he says, let me do it. And here's what I've done and here's what I'm doing for you. See, salvation must ultimately come from the Lord. See, when sin entered the world, way back in Genesis, right at the beginning, God promised in Genesis 3.15 that from the seed of the woman... Ultimately, the serpent, the devil, would be destroyed. So God brought it about by his own power, not through human effort. And the virgin birth is the unmistakable reminder that salvation can never come through human effort, but must always come from the work of God himself. He demonstrated, when later when he went to the cross, he demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, he took our nature in one person and he died for us, Romans 5, 8 tells us. So from the very beginning, God said, hey, listen, you messed up, but I'll make a way for you. And God, we, we know this story, God chose the people of Israel to be his people and he said, and I will be your God. And from them, salvation would come to all the peoples of the earth. And unless you're an ethnic Jew here today, you're one of the all the peoples of the earth from whom we now have our salvation. And Israel's story is a story, if you know it, if you read through the Old Testament, is a story of miraculous births. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Israel's story again and again and again is a story of miraculous births. It begins with the promise to a really old couple, Abraham and Sarah, who can't conceive. And God comes, Genesis 12 through Genesis 17, God comes and says they're going to have a baby and he says a great family is going to come from it. And Sarah, in receiving the news, what does she do? She laughs. It's such a ridiculous promise. There's no way that a baby is going to come. She laughs. And then the baby comes. And what she called him? Isaac, which means laughter, or he laughs. And the next great turning point in Israel's story, in the history of Israel, is the arrival of Moses, Exodus chapter 2. Now, there's nothing kind of supernatural about his birth, his conception's not a miracle, but his infancy is, and it's marked by a miraculous escape from danger. The whole Prince of Egypt story, if you've never seen it, well worth a watch. And the story is meant to anticipate and foretell the great miracle when God will deliver the people of Israel from slavery. 
And then when Israel, further in the story, gets to the promised land, God raises up judges to lead the people. And who's the first of the judges? It's a guy called Samson. And what happens at his birth? Well, you guessed it. It's another miracle story. Judges 13 tells us this story. Samson's mother's unable to conceive. And what happens? An angel visits her and says, hey, listen, from you is going to come a savior who is going to set the Israelites free from the Philistines. They were the enemies at the time. Samson is born. What does he do? He fights the Philistines. You get in the picture again and again and again. God takes the initiative in seemingly upside down, small, humble, weak things, and from them great victories come. You feel insignificant, small, humble, weak right now. God takes things like you, situations like yours, turns them upside down, and from that, great victories come. And after the age of the judges, we come in the history of Israel to the age of the prophets and the kings. And it begins with a woman named Hannah, who, guess what? She's a woman full of grief. Why? Because she cannot conceive and she cannot bear children. It tells the story in 1 Samuel 1. And in an answer to her prayer, Hannah becomes miraculously pregnant. And from her first child, Samuel, he becomes the prophet who will then appoint the kings of Israel and from the kings of Israel comes David and from the line of David comes the son of David who is Jesus birth story, birth story, birth story and even later when the people of Israel the people of God are in their darkest moment they're in captivity in Babylon the darkest hour of their history yet out of the depths of despair God speaks We heard it earlier in the beginning of our worship. Through the prophet Isaiah, God declares what is going to happen? That a child will be born. A son will be given who will lead God's people out of exile and into a new day of deliverance. A prince of peace who will lead redemption of the world, who will heal nations, who will rule over them. You see, Jesus, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, it isn't just some random miracle story. It's not just some powerful act of, let me show how I can do things. This is God not not kind of, I mean, he could have used any method he wants, right? He could have stepped into the world in any particular way he wanted to. He could have entered the human realm however he wanted, and he chose this way. Why? Because it's a reminder that our faith has deep roots in Israel's story. It has deep roots in the plans and purposes of God, because this story, the story of the people of God, is a story of victory and conquest and triumph in the most unlikely of places. See, the virgin birth shows us the victory of God. Shows us the victory of God. We get so familiar at this time of year with the carols that we sing. And they're often beautiful. Silent night, holy night, all is calm. I mean, it wouldn't have been, would it? (laughs) All is bright, holy infant, so tender and mild. Here's a baby. Have you ever seen a tender? I mean, they are when they sleep, but the rest of the time, blooming heck. Like, we so like, oh, isn't it beautiful? That we, we kind of, we sing these stunning, tr- God rest ye merry gentlemen. Right, we, I don't know why we don't sing that, we should. God rest ye merry gentlemen, da 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 da. Let nothing you dismay. The next line in that, remembers Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. The next bit, to save us from Satan's power. Oh! Like that suddenly is taking it a step or two, isn't it? Oh, flip. Like non-Christians, oh yes, save you from Satan's power. These songs remind us of the victory of God, the conquering of Satan, 
the conquering of his power. We just have a look a little bit more carefully. I went to my kids' nativity play this week. It didn't look like this. A woman in the middle of childbirth. Like, you go to a kid's nativity and the baby's just produced, right? Funny moment, our nativity, Daniel, he's five. I think the teacher was just having a laugh because Mary sat on a chair as the baby is born. And literally in the bit where it says, and Jesus was born, she sat on a chair, hitches up her skirt and pulls it out from underneath. <laughs> I love these teachers. That's so funny. She then chucked it into the manger like that. Whoop. (laughs) That's the nativity we see in our head, but this is the nativity that's really going on. A woman in the middle of childbirth, teeth clenched, screaming in pain, legs spread apart, standing over the woman, crouching, poised, is a seven-headed dragon ready to devour the child as soon as it's passed from the birth canal. Revelation 12, verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun. This is not Mary. This is a woman representative of the messianic community of believers. With the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that she might bore her child. When she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. This is not the nativity scene we see in primary schools up and down the country, is it? And yet this is the nativity scene all the same. See, the book of Revelation is what we call apocalyptic literature. And we're not very familiar with it in our culture because we don't really have anything. It's a bit like, best way to describe it is Revelation is a bit like going to the theater. And if you ever go to the theater, you see on the stage the play acting before you. But then imagine for a moment, you know the big curtains that hang at the back. Imagine for a moment the, the, the curtains are pulled back and you see all the mechanical workings out of how they move the stage and how they move the scenery and how everything happens behind the scenes. And Revelation is like everything happening behind the scenes. There's the play that's going out on the front, which is uh, Jesus in the, net, in the manger and all the nice nativity stuff that we see. And then Re- Revelation pulls back the curtain and we see the reality of what is going on behind us. Now we know that the birth of Jesus signifies that something significant is going on but zoomed out into Revelation 12 we see the reality of what is really going on because the Christmas story does not start in Bethlehem it starts way back in Eden in verse 9 of Revelation 12 uh, it talks of the ancient serpent being destroyed and it recalls the fall way back in Genesis where man yielded to temptation from the devil and so in that moment everything is plunged into death Everything is plunged into despair. Everything is plunged into darkness because everything is broken. And in that moment, God makes a promise. He says, I'll send a rescuer. I will send a deliverer. I will send a savior. And Genesis 3.15, I've already referenced it, says God makes a, he makes a promise to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. 
And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now this nativity moment, this Christmas story that we're so familiar with, this is the moment where that promise comes true. God's plan to repossess the world from the dominion of darkness is launched in the birth of a child who is destined to defeat the dragon that rages against the people of God. Like since the moment God declares to the serpent in Genesis 3.15 that I'm going to defeat you, from that moment the devil has known that this is coming. And from that moment, as you read throughout the Old Testament and into the New, we see the devil trying to thwart it at every attempt. How? With an attack on children, with an attack on babies. He's behind Pharaoh trying to kill the Hebrew baby boys in Exodus 1 and 2. He moves the wicked Attilia to destroy all the royal heirs of the household of Judah in 2 Chronicles 22. He moves the wicked Haman to plot genocide against the Jews in in the book of Esther. And he moves Herod to kill baby Jesus in Matthew 2. But in every situation, in every circumstance, his plans are thwarted and he fails. And the birth of Jesus on that day in Bethlehem inaugurates the death of this ancient serpent, just as it was promised by God in Genesis 3. What God promises, God delivers. What God says come to pass. When God declares victory and conquest over anything, it happens even in the midst of the most unlikely thing. Even if it takes miracle stories of babies being put into caskets and left in the bulrushes, even if it takes miraculous moments, you think, how can that possibly be? Because God has said it will be. See, Jesus didn't stay a baby. Today, we don't worship a baby in a manger. Through his death and his resurrection and his ascension, he's shown himself to be the one who rules the nations with an iron rod. From Psalm 2 onwards, there's this promise of a king who is coming, who will rule the nations. Look at verse 7 of Revelation 12. Now war arose in heaven... Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God and they have conquered him. By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. Jesus has won the victory. And the birth of Jesus marks the beginning of the end of evil, sin, pain, and death. And we live now in the, in the now and the not yet. We live in the middle of it. We don't yet see the fullness of the coming kingdom. But we live in victory nonetheless. He has conquered And so now if you're a Christian, you are in Christ, which now means you have conquered. It means according to Romans 8, you are now more than a conqueror. See, our enemy has been defeated. Look at verse 11 here of Revelation 12. We have conquered him. We have conquered him by 
the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Every time I'm faced with a battle, I have overcome. Not because I have done anything, but because Jesus has. And now I declare the testimony of the blood of the Lamb shed for me, the death of Jesus for me, the resurrection, the conquering victory of Jesus for me. And my life now is hidden in him. We have overcome. It means we're victorious, even if we don't feel it. Right now, if you don't feel it, it's never been about what you feel. I believe I'm victorious, even if you don't feel it. It means that you are not alone in the spiritual battles that we fight on earth. You see, our battles, there is a revelation thing going on, pulled back. We were living our lives on the play, but pulled back. There are battles on earth, our spiritual battles on earth are paralleled in the heavenly realms with heavenly hosts as our advocates fighting for us, our champions fighting for us, spiritual realms, spiritual armies that none can number. Those who are with us are greater than those who are against us. We heard it in our worship. This is the victory of God. The long promise finally arrived. This is what we sing in our carols. O come, O come, Emmanuel, to ransom captive Israel. It's not just a beautiful line. It's an incredible, stunning truth. We were once captive, but God made a promise, and God delivered, and God rescued us. This is the fulfillment of the promise. The very last line of that carol, O come, O come, Emmanuel, fill the whole world with heaven's peace. This is the fulfillment of that promise. Now, there was nothing peaceful about how it happened. Nothing peaceful in the physical. I've seen childbirth. It is a lot of things, but peaceful it's not. Nor was it peaceful in the spiritual realm because a battle was waged, but victory was won so that peace might come. Because we're going to end with this. Emmanuel is here. It's the stunning implication. Emmanuel is here. God with us. In coming to earth, God makes a way for all the wrong to be made right. For all the brokenness to be made whole. In conquering sin, in conquering Satan, in conquering death, he has made a way that it all might be right and more than that, that we might be with him. From the very beginning That was the plan. In the Garden of Eden, God walked with Adam and Eve every night and they said, God walks with us. And when God led the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, he did so with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And the children of Israel said, the Lord is before and behind us. And then God had them build a tabernacle where his glory came to dwell. And they said, God is in the midst of us. And then Jesus is born and the angel says, call him Emmanuel, for God is with us. And when Jesus left and the Holy Spirit came on the first disciples, they said, God is in us. See, the battle was waged on your behalf so that you might know God as a father and walk with him as a friend. Emmanuel is here. God is here. He still is. He still is. Nothing's changed. And as Jesus leaves the earth, he says to his friends, go make disciples. Go and do all the stuff that I've commanded you. Go and live out your life. Go and take it to the ends of the earth. 
Go to the least, the last, the lost. Go to the people of every tribe and every tongue. Go live out your life. Go make disciples. Go do it all for the glory of God and know this. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm with you always to the end of the age. I'm with you right now. I'm with you tomorrow. I'm with you in the battle. I'm with you in the fight. I'm with you in the trial. I'm with you in the pain. I'm with you in the mundane. I'm with you in every moment, every situation, because Emmanuel is here. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. We fix our eyes on you. In the familiarity of Christmas and the story of your birth, Lord, we don't want to miss the implications.